Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. The focus of this podcast overall is the idea of wrongful convictions and how they're often misrepresented, so-called wrongful convictions and how they're misrepresented in the media. But my primary focus is the West Memphis Three case, which I consider to be a paradigmatic case that really set set the template for uh, many of the cases since. It certainly set up the basic idea of what you're supposed to be doing in a, uh, a true crime documentary for the last 25 years or so. And... Uh, and what what's happened is that those documentaries have increasingly become advocacy uh, journalism, and advocacy is almost always for uh, it's against the judicial system. It's against the police. It it suggests that they 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 constantly do just everything wrong, often either highly incompetent or malicious. Or racist, or all of the above. Which is not to say the police departments are perfect, or that prosecutors are perfect, or judges, or the judicial system's perfect. But um, I tend to think, and they get it right more often than not. Now, un- unlike a lot of people, I've actually been to tr- tr- trials. I covered. Uh, a number of murder trials many, many years ago um, and uh, I've been to court quite a few times as an as a observer, as a journalist and I'm quite aware of how, how things play out and there are problems with the judicial system so I'm not going to argue the, argue that it's perfect. What I am going to argue against is that uh, is the idea that all these people that show up that everybody's supposed to get behind are somehow they're the unluckiest people in the world. Uh, you know, Reuben Carter, Damian Eccles, Adnan Syed, Stephen Avery, Ryan Ferguson. Who else am I leaving out? I'm sure I'm, I'm uh, the staircase guy. What's his name? <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen that show several times. Anyway, I'm going to mostly be talking in the in this podcast about the West Memphis Three. I wrote. I really wrote two books about the case. I started out right with my intention to write just one. And uh, I had so much material. I wanted everything to be very complete. Uh, I didn't want people coming to me and saying, oh, you didn't put that in, and you didn't put that in, you you overlooked this. And obviously you have to draw the line someplace. So particularly with things like the evidence concerning alibis and so forth, I went to great detail, including a lot of redundancy that 
could have easily have been shortened and was uh, in a third book I did, which is a condensed, revised version. That book's called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Uh, the, the first book in the first volume in the two-volume series is Blood on Black. The second volume is Where the Monsters Go. What I'm going to do in this podcast is take us back to the beginnings of the case. And as with almost all criminal cases, you, you could, in some cases you could go back generations or even hundreds of years. But you have to make a reasonable starting place. And I start with the childhood, birth, childhood, youth, the background of Damien Eccles. He started out as a very troubled small child, has grown up to be a very troubled middle-aged man. Uh, and particularly focus in on the events that occurred starting a year before the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore on May 5th, 1993 in a portion of West Memphis, Arkansas, a little wooded area called Robin Hood Hills. Almost exactly a year before, Damien Eccles uh, had a series of events that went on in his life that precipitated uh, a mental health crisis somebody who was already extremely vulnerable to uh, all sorts of stresses, and he basically had a perfect storm for that year. And he brought, in, as with a lot of these sorts of situations, he brought a lot of it on himself, and he certainly brought a lot on himself in West Memphis Three case. Now what happened with Stevie, Michael, and Chris there were three eight-year-old boys, second graders, at Waver Elementary School in West Memphis, Arkansas. As uh, little boys were prone to do way back in the day, it really wasn't that long ago, it was 27 years ago. Uh, they were free to get on their bicycles and ride around the neighborhood playing, and nobody worried about them too much. I suggest this still goes on more than people realize. I, I still see boys out playing with no adult supervision. I see kids, more boys, I think, than girls, but I see them out playing with no supervision, but I don't see, I certainly don't see it as I did, say, 30 or 40, 50 years ago. And I'm an old guy, so I remember things from 50 years ago. Uh, but they were out playing, and uh, they came up missing. Uh, their parents searched for them all night. Uh, and their bodies were found, they, they alerted police. Their bodies were found the next day in a ditch. Uh, they were tied up. They were bound very strangely. It's described as being hog-tied, but that's not really what it was. It was left tied with shoestrings, left uh, ankle to right to left wrist, right ankle to right wrist, all three boys, which doesn't really, doesn't really, wouldn't, wouldn't really have held them if they were conscious. It wouldn't have, it would have impeded some movement, but it would not have stopped them from uh, untying themselves for one thing. Uh, 
two of the boys were mutilated. Stevie Branch had terrible wounds to his face in particular. He was really wounded all over. All, th all three of the boys had many wounds. They were obviously had been beaten. Uh, a knife had been used on, a knife, some sharp object had been used on two of the boys. Stevie had a horrific wound to his face. Christopher Byers, besides multiple small stabbing type wounds, had been, well, basically his testicles had been removed and part of his penis had been skinned or something like that. It's too horrible to think about. And police, this is a relatively small police department. The police began, almost automatically began search. Of course they did. They started searching immediately, trying to figure out who might have done this. And they talked to uh, a, a number of many, many people as potential suspects including local, local sex offenders, of whom there, there seem to be plenty of those in West Memphis. They, they pop up everywhere in this, this case file. Uh, but none of them um, were viable suspects, obvious viable suspects for the, uh, for the crime. Um, it was, uh, West Memphis is, uh, it's where I, Interstate 40 and I-55 meet. They're joined together briefly right through West Memphis. There's service roads that run alongside that joined interstate. And the wooded area is immediately off the service road. So it, while it had the appearance, I mean, it had, in many ways, it was isolated. But it was only in a very it was isolated in a very limited sense is that you right next door was a 24-hour truck stop and there were across this bayou which is really a big drainage ditch called 10 mile bayou where the home were uh, these say lower middle class homes you know little three-bedroom tract homes that you'll see at least all over the south and i presume all over much of the country from you know 60s and 70s uh, and that's where the boys lived in these little houses uh, the what happened was among the possible suspects and it struck struck the police that particularly the bindings the fact that the boys were nude it struck some of the police that there might be a ritualistic aspect to the case it did have certain ritualistic qualities with the bindings and the nudity and and the placing in the water which arguably might have some religious or or uh, religious connotations uh, they were there have been a lot of concern in the area with uh, cult activity certainly nothing at this level but uh, uh, vandalism um, abandoned school that had that had burned down but had uh, 
at one point had had uh, you know a magic circle drawn up in it. Uh, it looked like uh, people were actually holding some sort of occult rituals there. Um, and there had been a teenager who had been feeding uh, a local juvenile detention officer, his, his detention officer, local juvenile detention officer, uh, a whole bunch of information. Maybe it was just for his own amusement. Maybe it was all based in fact. Who knows when we, this, this because the source was Damien Eccles. And Damien, Damien Eccles is, in case you haven't figured it out, if, you, if you're following this case at all and you haven't figured it out yet, he's a notorious liar. But uh, he, and he likes to be the center of attention. So he had this detention, uh, juvenile detention officer, thoroughly convinced that there were some major occult events coming up, including the p potential for ritual sacrifices of human beings. So, because of that, th this juvenile detention officer and his assistant, uh, Jer Jerry Driver and his assistant, Steve Jones, they, they really thought that Damien Eccles might have something to do with this. They tried to alert the Memphis PD, uh, West Memphis PD about this, and West Memphis PD weren't taking it too seriously at that point. Uh, according to Driver's own statements, they just weren't really paying a lot of attention to him with this. But there, there, were, there was a preliminary checking out of uh, Eccles on May 7th. There was, uh, they paid a, a visit to him, and what happened was on May 9th, they visit uh, his his friend Jason Baldwin. At, they all three of these killers lived in uh, trailer parks between. Well, two of them lived in. One of them lived in Highland Trailer Park. Another one lived in Lakeshore Trailer Park. Those two trailer parks are between uh, West Memphis and Marion. Uh, basically, across across the way from each other, not exactly, but very close to each other across I-55 and, and really very close to West Memphis. Eccles actually lived in a trailer park uh, over on the east side of, of West Memphis. Uh, but he spent a lot of time at Lakeshore Trailer Park because he was best friends with Jason Baldwin who lived there. He had a girlfriend, a pregnant girlfriend named Deanna, not Deanna, Hulk, uh, Dominique Tier, who lived there. And uh, so they were, the police dropped by to talk to Jason and Damien on May 9th, four days after the killings. Jason mother shows up and shuts down his interview very early on, but he, he did answer some questions on this checklist and the local police had talked to the FBI and gotten some ideas about what kind of questions they need to be asking somebody who would commit this kind of crime. Uh, the answers Jason gave were perfectly normal answers you'd expect from almost anybody. No red flags whatsoever. The but his mother showed up and 
basically went just went crazy. She had, she had mental problems. Virtually, every, there's plenty of mental people with mental problems in this, but she had, she had serious mental problems. She'd been uh, in and out of. She'd been to the emergency room with various sorts of mental breakdowns uh, a number of times in the months preceding uh, the killings. Uh, she shut that down. Damien, meanwhile, went on to answer the questions, and he answered the questions in such a way that officers thought he was a suspicious character. You know, they asked him how he thought that the killer would feel about this, and he thought that he would be happy about this. He thought he would, uh, if it, uh, they asked him about the, would the, the, about the boys potentially screaming, and Eccles said he would have enjoyed the sound, but it would have been drowned out by uh, traffic noises, which is fairly true. Uh, where they were killed, even though it was fairly close to homes, it, it's fairly noisy there. It was in, in the late afternoon, so it'd be noisier, prop, noisy enough uh, it was also uh, in the woods. It was down in a kind of a small ravine, so they a lot of the sound would have been blocked just by the bluff over this little ditch that they were placed in. It was like a muddy irrigation ditch that they were placed in. It wasn't deep at all, uh, just deep enough to obscure the bodies, really, and just barely that deep. Um, Eccles said one be cut up more than the others, which is not something that anybody would know except somebody who was actually involved. In fact, there had been a media report that, uh, that Saturday that described all three boys being ritually mutilated. <coughs> I worked at the, it was in the commercial appeal. I worked there at the time. I knew the reporter who who wrote that story, James Kingsley, he's a good reporter. Uh, I knew the, the guys who wrote the original book on the case, uh, Blood of Innocence, Mark Peresquia, uh, Guy Real, and um, <laughs> what's his name? Oh my God, Bart Sullivan. So I, I know those guys. I knew those guys, all good reporters. Uh, Blood of Innocence is a good book, very interesting. It's somewhat overtaken by events, and some things in it are just simply not right, just simply because it's been proven later that the information wasn't really correct at the time, but the, they were putting together something on the run, so to speak. And uh, so it's not a perfect book, but it's pretty good. It's out of print, has been for a long time, but you can find a copy. Uh, what happened was, uh, so Eccles had uh, these answers to these questions, and the more he talked, the more suspicious they they became. The same day, they get a tip that he'd been seen walking been seen walking away from the scene of the crime on the evening of the crime. Uh, the next day, 
a woman named Narlene Hollingsworth comes into the West Memphis Police Department, uh, talks to uh, the police, police and describes she's the, the one who has the information about this tip. She says she and her family uh, were driving by uh, on the service road very close to uh, the crime scene that evening about 9.30, 9.20, 9.30, and they see, see Damien Eccles and his girlfriend, Dominique Tear standing on, by the side of the road in muddy, dirty clothes. They pass them up. Now, Narlene Hollingsworth considered Dominique to be a relative. Technically, she's not a relative, but they really considered her to be a relative by marriage. And they knew da- they knew Damien. They knew who he was. So it's the the idea that you know eyewitness eyewitness statements are a little problematic, but in this case we have somebody who knows both parties very very well. Particularly Dominique knew her very well, and there were th- there were three people in that family who all said the same thing. They described the same thing. They said they saw Dominique. And uh, Damien, very similar, dirty clothes, by the side of the road. Uh, Narlene's husband, who was also in the car, said he saw somebody, but he couldn't recognize who it was. Okay. So they, they, had, they had that information that Monday. And then Damien Eccles came in and talked for, was in for quite a while that day. Uh, wasn't really very helpful to police, and they didn't take they didn't re- take a, a detailed statement from him. They just wrote up reports afterwards. It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Uh, and Damien uh, took a and he he had given one set of out. He gave a, a, one a description of an alibi on Sunday, and by Monday he had a, a different. You know, a different time frame, different information about his alibi. So that was a little suspicious. He really had trouble accounting for himself, and he wanted—he seemed to want to spend an awful lot of time talking about his occult beliefs, which, again, had to uh, raise the suspicions of the police. He described uh, the boys being uh, the bodies being placed in the water so that the the book that the urine that had been placed in that had been placed in their mouths basically they were forced to drink urine according to this statement would be washed out Uh, how he would know that (laughs) except for being there there's just simply no explanation. Now, can, has that been proved that there was urine? Uh, and no, no. They thought at one point that they were going to get some autopsy results showing that, but it, it turned out not to be the case. The uh, does it disprove that there was urine? That this urine thing going on there? Well, it doesn't disprove it. It just just there's no physical evidence for it. There's really very relatively little physical evidence in this case. Uh, it's mostly a circumstantial case. Um, 
what happened then was, you know, Damien agreed to take a polygraph test. He fails the polygraph test. He throws up. He insists that he'll to see that he needs to see his mother. Instead of calling for a lawyer, he insists on that he see his mother. But he said he would talk. They let it tell you everything if you'll. They'll let him see his mother. So they let him see his mother. And then what happens? He says, "Well, I'm not telling you anything." And then he's gone. That's the last time he talked to police. Well, they, by this time, failed polygraph, citing by the side of the road, suspicious answers to, to questions and two sets of, two sets of uh, interviews, including some special knowledge, uh, particularly about the, the extent of the injuries to the boys and one being injured more than the others. That wasn't public knowledge, that special knowledge that would only be known to somebody who was privy to some special information about the case. In other words, you could be a police investigator and know that, or you could be a killer. So they had a pretty good suspect. They continued to look at other suspects. This was not a case where they got... uh, they were blinded by the idea that, that it was Damien. It couldn't be anybody else. They continued to look at other suspects. They talked to other suspects. They interviewed, they polygraphed dozens of people in this case, and they used to polygraph a lot, and you can argue about how effective the polygraph is, but they thought it was a useful tool, and they used, they did use it in the case. And... Uh, Damien, you know, every time somebody failed the polygraph, it seemed to point to, most of the time, it seemed to point to the guilt of the West Memphis Three, certainly in the case of Damien. It also did that in the case of his co-defendant, Jesse Miskelly Jr., who also failed a polygraph. Uh, Jason Baldwin refused to take a polygraph, really refused to cooperate in any any manner whatsoever. Uh, they talked to some other people that month, that month, in the next month or so. Uh, Damien's mother gave some very confusing information about uh, his potential alibi, again, raising more suspicions. Uh, there was a young friend of acquaintance of Damien Eccles, who uh, named William Jones, who came forward and described Eccles not giving like a full-blown confession, but having been drunk one evening uh, in Lakeshore Trailer Park and describing his involvement in the killings. Uh, William Jones came to police. The police knew about that. They continued to investigate among those who were involved in this investigation was a woman named Vicki Hutchison, who's, she's really an important figure in the case, but not for the reasons that most people seem to think she is. She was friends with Jesse Miskelly Jr. She was also friends with uh, the Byers family, Mark Byers, and her son was friends with uh, Mark and Melissa Byers, and uh, she, her son, Aaron, was friends with uh, Michael Moore, 
Christopher Byers, and to a lesser extent with Stevie Branch, but he was particularly good friends with those other two boys who lived right across the street from each other. The uh, Vicki Hutchison happened to be in the Marion Police Department talking to police about potential charges against her whenever the call came in, uh, whenever uh, the day that they were searching for the boys, May, May 6th, she mentions that uh, her son Aaron is friends with uh, Christopher and Stevie. Uh, she's already pulled Stevie out, uh, pulled Aaron out of stool, school, pulled Aaron out of school to talk to the Byers family. Apparently they weren't much, he wasn't much help there. Uh, Donald Bray, who was police officer at Marion that was talking to Vicki Hutchison, thought, well, uh, oh, here, here's a potential lead here. Maybe he'll know where these boys are. He calls over to the West Memphis Police Department. During that call, he finds out that the boys' bodies have been found. And from that point on, Vicki Hutchison and her son were heavily involved in the investigation, but they actually offered very, very little in terms of useful information. What did happen was they provided a lead into Jesse Miskelly, who eventually confessed to the crime and implicated his to acquaintances, friends, however you want to characterize them, Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles. Uh, Vicki Hutchison de de decided she was going to play detective. Uh, she tried to arrange some meetings with uh, Damian Eccles. Uh, it's really unclear how cl close they became. There was some interaction whether it was a little five, whether Damien Eccles stopped by once for five minutes and said, "This is a too, this situation's too weird, and let's let's leave, I'm going to leave and not come back," which is maybe how it happened, or whether there was more involved with that, with Eccles actually even stalking her at one point, which would be in character with him. He had a history of stalking. Uh, that is also a possibility. It's very unclear because we're dealing with unreliable narrators here. Now, what had happened in the year, the year prior to May 5th, 1993, was the previous May, uh, Eccles' stepfather, Jack Eccles, had been uh, accused of molesting uh, Damien's younger sister, Michelle. Uh, this caused a family crisis. His mother broke up with uh, her, her uh, with her, uh, with Jack Eccles, who was Damien's stepfather. His name originally had been Michael Hutchison, not relation to Victoria Hutchison, spelled differently. Uh, sounds the same. Uh, and uh, had, he had taken Jack Eccles' name and had taken on the name of, depending on what you want to believe, either it was a, a saint 
who helped lepers in Hawaii, or two other possibilities. Damien was also the name of the son of Satan in uh, The Omen. And there was a father, Damien, who was named after that priest in the book and movie The Exorcist. Now, Damien Eccles had a copy of The Exorcist in his home. He was a huge horror fan. His family watched horror movies. He stayed up late with his family as a small child watching horror movies and his father apparently liked to wear weird masks and scare Damien etc etc so he was already you know maybe he got the information because of his deep interest in Catholicism which he was claiming at the time and maybe he was deeply interested in Catholicism I don't know or um, but the priest never really trusted him with with he always thought he was up to something. The uh, the other possibility is he was enamored of the name Damien because of, of its association with the son of Satan and also the exorcist. One or the other, perhaps both. Anyway. the same time that this was going on with his mother and his stepfather he was involved in a a breakup with uh, a girl that he was absolutely obsessed with named Deanna Holcomb she was a younger girl and you know Damien was 18 when he was arrested so this would have been when he was 17 Deanna was a year or two younger uh, just, just so you know, Dame, uh, Mike Miskelly was 17, almost 18, when he was arrested for murder, and uh, Jason was 16. Anyway, D Damien was very involved with this girl named Deanna Holcomb. Her family did not want her involved with Damien. This created a lot of tensions, and she eventually broke up with him and uh, this precipitated a crisis with Damien uh, where he uh, threatened to kill various people. Uh, he attacked her, her new boyfriend in the hall uh, at school, hallway at school, and tried to rip out his eyes. Now, it, Damien was already dressing in black and positioning himself as some sort of weird occult vampire, witch, magician, something or other. And um, he had grown his nails out to, and had them filed to half an inch and a half, which is pretty long. And he tried to scratch this boy's eyes out, but he they pulled him off. Uh, he was basically kicked out of school, not just that, but he had been involved in setting fires, uh, been suspended six or seven times, had been involved in fights. Uh, if you're looking for what's known as the dark triad, Damien was also known to have uh, tortured, he described to his friends torturing animals. He was known to have 
uh, killed a sick Great Dane uh, that Jason Baldwin's cousin described to police. An incident that Jason's ba- Jason Baldwin's cousin described to police. So he was already mentally unhealthy anyway. And then this mental, this romantic breakup is great, causing great problems for him. But they got back together and decided they were going to run away together. They didn't get very far. They ended up in a trailer in Lakeshore Trailer Park. Police arrest them uh, for breaking and entering. Uh, Damien gets, also gets charged with terroristic threatening. He claims he thought about he, that he ha- had access to a gun and thought about killing his uh, girlfriend's father while this was going on when the father shows up. But, you know, that's probably just a sort of a fantasy. The two, two are separated. Uh, they both go off for some sort of mental treatment, but Eccles uh, makes a suicide attempt, so they send him to charter in uh, Little Rock. He's there for several weeks. They find all sorts of disturbing symptoms with him. Uh, a lot of expression of violent tendencies. Uh, parents are concerned about this and that. But they let him out eventually, and uh, his parents say they're moving to or his his parents his real his real father shows up, mother's getting a divorce, real father shows up, they're going to get back together and they're going to move to Oregon. So Damien was supposed to go along with this. He hadn't seen his real father in a number of years. They didn't really know each other. Uh, Joe Hutchison wouldn't have recognized his son. He describes being shocked by his son's appearance when he encounters him in uh, a charter. Uh, they, uh, they go to Oregon. They stay a couple of weeks. Damien gets involved in an incident where he, he's been buying knives and his father is upset about this because he thinks he's wasting his money on stuff that he doesn't think he needs to be spending money on for one thing. Damien apparently gets drunk one evening, uh, threatens to kill himself, threatens to slash his mother's throat, threatens to eat his father with a spoon, uh, basically terrorizes the family. Police come. He goes off to uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Portland, and he is... Uh, there for a couple of days. Again, they find uh, disturbing activity. Parents are concerned about satanic involvement. They let him out, though, and the agreement is, is that, he'll, that Damien can return to Arkansas, which is where he really wants to go. Uh, and his, But his parents make it clear they don't want him there. That he, they consider him to be uh, a danger to themselves and to uh, children in, in the, that are younger children in the home. And they state this explicitly. Damien goes back to Arkansas, but part of his probation deal is he's supposed to check in with a uh, uh, probation officer. Apparently didn't do that. And Jerry Driver, who'd been assigned the case as a result of all this stuff earlier in the year, uh, sees Damien's back and he 
puts him, uh, puts him, he has him detained. And while he's in detention, he tries to drink the blood uh, of another boy in the, the detention center in Jonesboro. So they send him back to Charter again. He's there for a couple of days. They see more disturbing symptoms, uh, but he's eventually let out. And uh, then he basically is living with his stepfather, his estranged but no longer estranged stepfather, Jack Eccles, for a couple of months. He's spent a lot of times with he's he's gotten he's somehow gotten past Deanna Holcomb, and he's back with. Uh, Dominique here, who had apparently had gone out with before, they're together. She ends up becoming pregnant, uh, and Damien's living with them quite a bit of the time. His parents have moved back to West Memphis in the, in the spring of 93. In the meantime, Damien Eccles has decided to apply for Social Security Disability and on his social security form, he describes himself uh, for disability, mental illnesses. He describes himself as homicidal, suicidal. Uh, describes himself as a sociopath. He describes himself as uh, uh, manic depressive and schizophrenic. I think in one, one spot he described himself as an alcoholic. So... There you have it. He's a homicidal, suicidal alcoholic, and he was going to counseling uh, in the in those months from January up until May. In fact, he went to a counseling session the very day. A lot of his activity during the day on May fifth had to do with picking up his prescription for depression and mempramine at the local pharmacy, and going to see a psychiatrist who described himself as being uh, having uh, concerns about his impulsive behaviors. So that's what happened the year before uh, Eccles up to the killing time. Let me add that Jason Baldwin's at uh, Jason Baldwin's home uh, he he'd, his mother was married to a man named Terry Grinnell. So her name's her name's Angela was named Angela Gail Grinnell, and she was having mental as I had already previously stated she was having mental problems that year. She um, finally that many arguments with the, the stepfather Terry Grinnell who had a drinking problem. They finally he, he according to Jason Baldwin who another guy who who's not really very reliable source of facts, but uh, according to Jason Baldwin, he was an alcoholic or at least a heavy drinker, particularly on the weekends, and that he abused, physically abused, not only uh, his wife, but the children there. And uh, according to Baldwin himself, he chased his stepfather out of the house with a baseball bat a few weeks before the uh, killings. Uh, in the meantime, her mother had moved in a, a small-time petty criminal named Dink Dent into the home, and uh, but they weren't getting along, and there were problems there. So Jason, who had uh, already found his mother 
passed out in a suicide attempt sometime earlier that year. Uh, was under a lot of stress as well. And Jesse Miskelly was living at a house with two extremely heavy drinkers. His father was actually at a at DWI school on May 5th, 1993. And the lady that was living there was not, uh, named Lee Rush, was not his stepmother, but just his father's girlfriend. So none of the killers were involved, had, had good family, good family uh, situations. Well, what happened was among, so a year later, police are investigating and they find uh, uh, among the many acquaintances of uh, Amy Nichols is a kid that, you know, it looks like they need to get around to talking to him. He was certainly not high. He was not on anybody's list to talk to, uh, but uh, they decide they get around to talking to Jesse Miskelly. They pick him up. His father says, oh yeah, go talk to him. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, they had paperwork to fill out. They actually had to find uh, the father and get his permission. And Skelly's in there uh, for a while filling out paper. And then they have a casual conversation with, you know, where Jason, I mean, uh, Jesse describes Damien as being weird and drinking blood and he really describes in a really negative sort of way. But, uh, and he thinks Damien and this other young thug uh, might uh, have actually been involved in the killings. And then they say, well, you take a polygraph test. And Jesse says, oh, okay. So they give him a polygraph test, and he fails it. So there's two failures for the West Memphis Three. And the third one's never taken a polygraph test. So they come back and say, you know... The examiner, Bill Durham, says, you know, he's lying his ass off. So they go back and they talk to Jesse, and he said he admits he had something. To, he was there when the killings uh, occurred. And from that point on, it's about 1230. They talked to him for about two hours, a little bit over two hours. Uh, very standard police practice. And then they start taping. They tape from about 12.40 to about 3.15. And that's the primary confession. And Jesse Miskelly Jr. describes going with Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles to Robin Hood Hills and the killing of these three little boys, particularly describing Jason as being the primary knife welder uh, and that he's just sort of, a, you know, he, he's just sort of along for the ride. He really wants to minimize his own role. He doesn't describe himself uh, in any kind of uh, deeply implicating way. He thinks, though the fact that he's there and he was involved in a plan to go beat up some boys and the, it devolves into a killing. So, very, you know, it's a murder case. And so, and then the, then the West Memphis Three are, he also describes being involved in satanic rituals with Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly, uh, Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles. Now, uh, for all the talk about satanic panic, which is usually applied to 
you know, other phenomena like you know, uh, cases where uh, daycare centers, for instance, were having these wild stories about satanic cults being involved in the abuse of children. Uh, I suppose there was a satanic panic in some other areas, but this sometimes gets lumped in with the satanic panic cases. However, there was no media coverage focusing on potential Satanism or the occult until one of the killers made a confession and confessed that he was involved with a satanic cult and one of the men arrested was an acknowledged practitioner of Wicca. And then there was then there was significant coverage with an occult angle at that point. But it was it was as a result of who was arrested. Somebody who's a confessed Satanist, however low key and not understanding he was of that. It's not clear that Jesse Miskelly had any real clear understanding of what Satanism actually was or even who Satan was. And, uh, you know, you get the, get the impression if you read long, read it long enough, he was there just basically because it was an excuse to drink. Damien Eccles was heavily involved in the occult and uh, there were some occult groups practicing in the area. It was not, uh, not doing, the other groups, as far as we know, were doing nothing illegal. And it's not against the law to be in an occult group. But they were there, and causing some concern, uh, largely because of Damien Eccles, who'd been feeding, feeding uh, the fears of Jerry Driver. So that is how the West Memphis Three were uh, ended up being arrested. They were arrested and charged. Uh, they were convicted in separate trials in 1994. Jesse Miskelly Jr. Uh, was found guilty in a separate trial because, which the main the main uh, evidence against him was his confession. He had two attempted alibis, both of which failed, and attempted alibis don't make you look good to a judge and jury. Uh, Baldwin and Eccles were tried together. They were also convicted. Uh, Baldwin essentially had a, well, I won't do anything and hopefully they'll just assume that I didn't do anything in this. It wasn't really, really, not a lot of really strong, strong evidence against Jason Baldwin. The main thing they had against him, other than his association with Damien Eccles, was a, a jailhouse a confession to a, 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 another teenager named Michael Carson, in which he described some very grisly details uh, about the attacks. Uh, again, this is, that's a very controversial portion of the case. Uh, they also found a knife behind his house thrown into the lake that appeared to be the potential murder weapon. Both those things don't look good, uh, but uh, with Damien Eccles, you know, 
we had failed alibis. We had the sighting. Uh, of course, they couldn't use the, the polygraph. Uh, and we had his own, you know, he testified, and his testimony was really disastrous. It really just amplified all the problems that had come out in the uh in the initial interviews with police, which that all that came back to haunt him in a major way. He made him look, made him look really guilty. And then his own behavior, his own behavior during the trial was contemptuous of the, of the all the proceedings and particularly the families of the victims. And it's hard to believe any of the jurors would have found much sympathy with Damien Eccles. Uh, just on a personal basis, even if they, you know, obviously if they had no evidence, it would be one thing. It was also There was physical evidence, um, some fibers, there was candle wax that was linked uh, to, the, that was found at the scene that uh, was compatible with uh, candle wax found at Echo's house and also at Dominique Tears' house. Um, and then the, the siding was really uh, very, uh, very strong evidence against Eccles uh, in a trial, a, you know, a trial setting, and then he also had made confessions at a softball game uh, to a crowd of people that he killed these boys, and that really hurt him as well. Uh, what happened then? They lingered in prison for a couple of years. Uh, all this was. Uh, Amazingly enough, uh, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinoski came down uh, from New York. Uh, two Jewish guys come down from New York, uh, and they see what they imagine to be, you know, a wildly redneck, fundamentalist town, uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. It's not... A particular, I'll go over this many times in the future. It's not a particularly religious town. Uh, the economy is based on truck stops uh, and gambling, and that's the big that's the big economy pulls there. Truck stops, restaurants, etc. Traffic, traffic through the area. Uh, there's some light industry there. Um, and a lot of the town's very poor. It's also mostly black now. It was it's blacker now than it was then, but it was most it was already very black then. And um, the now where am I going? Where am I going? I'm about to lose lose track. Uh, the what happened was Sadovsky and and. Uh, Berlinger come down, and they're basically in foreign territory. This they might as well be going to the jungles of the Amazon or something for all the all the what they have in common with the people there, except they do speak the same language more or less. And uh, they come down to film uh, the case, and on on the basis of very little evidence, a, a, a brief interview with Damien Eccles. They're after winning the confidence of the families of these victims for months, getting their confidence, filming them in intimate scenes, including them grieving. They do a flip after a 15-minute interview with Damien Eccles and decide, oh, he's innocent. And so the rest of the film, the film ultimately, 
while still somewhat ambiguous, um, paints a sympathetic portrait. Overall, I st it still to me it still makes them look guilty. I still think they're guilty after seeing the movie. But overall, what they show is um, a case that if you don't have if you don't show what the evidence is, it looks like the, they don't have any evidence against the West Memphis Three. Well, one reason they don't seem to have any evidence against them is because you don't show any of the evidence. You show very little of it. Um, and it, that film is released on in uh, on HBO in 1996. What happens then is there's kind of a worldwide interest in this case. It builds over time. Uh, various parties get involved uh, on a lower level pretty soon. Really, the whole wasn't. It was crowd. You know, their defense was really sort of crowdfunded initially. And people, there was a lot of grassroots involvement in Little Rock and other places in California, uh, Berksalls, Grove, Pashley, and uh, Kathy Backen were three people in Hollywood who got interested in the case. They were very involved in it. They show up in the, the second Paradise Lost movie. Second Paradise Lost movie, Berlinger, and I think it came out in 99. By that time, John Mark Byers was in prison for uh, some drug drug problems. His wife, Melissa, had died. Uh, very bad time for him. And they painted him as being, you know, they didn't actually say he did it, but they made him look guilty. He play, he'd played up for the cameras. He'd been given money, uh, some other amenities, gratuities, etc., etc. And uh, he liked the attention. And so they, he played to the camera, and what had happened was they made him look really guilty in that, that movie, and he paid a huge price for it. Of course, he was already in prison, but he didn't really realize what he was getting into when he got out. So for, all the, for many years, John Mark Byers was the real killer, and uh, the West Memphis Three were just innocent little kids who happened to like Metallica, wear black t-shirts, and have funny-looking haircuts. Finally got around to that deal, which is that black t-shirts with rock emblems on it were not uncommon in West Memphis. <coughs> Jason Baldwin actually described recently one of the officers who came to talk to him at his house on May 9th, 1993 is wearing a black t-shirt with a grim grim reaper logo or whatever you call emblem or whatever it is you call that on the front uh maybe not as heavy metal as metallica but certainly <laughs> i think that's i think it's a black rock t-shirt the police were wearing them Police were police, and everybody else were listening to. Not all of them, but certainly some of them were listening to things things like Metallica. And how would the police know or care what music Jason Baldwin and and Damien Knuckles were listening to? Nobody would care about that. Damien uh, Jason Baldwin looked like a very typical 
stoner kid. You know, he looks like somewhere between. He looks like a cross between Beavis and Butthead, with a with a absolutely fantastic mullet uh, from in nineteen ninety three. Damien Eccles is a little different. Jason Baldwin, I mean, uh, Damien Jesse Miskelly. He had a black T-shirt at his house, but but that black T-shirt had Reba McIntyre on it. <coughs> and there's no interest. He had any in, interest in. There's no in, in, in evidence he had any interest in uh, heavy metal at all. So anyway, there was a second movie that came out. And then that went on for many years with John Mark Byers being the primary suspect. There were some uh, laws changed in Arkansas. New evidence, uh, new evidence rules for the convicted. They could go back and try for uh, new DNA testing. That was finally approved. Uh, they get a DNA result in 2007. And, excuse me a second. The new, in 2007, uh, they discovered that there's a single hair uh, that was attached to, uh, in the ligature of the shoelaces used to tie the boys that may or may not be linked to uh, Terry Hobbs. In other words, he couldn't be excluded. But there were many, many people uh, around the world, and even on the basis of uh, just the numbers in West Memphis, there were many people in West Memphis who could not be excluded from that hair. It was not that uh, it was mitochondrial DNA and it was just not that rare it was like one and a half percent of the population which is you know it probably is hair so, but it's his its presence is also uh, attributable attributable to secondary transfer uh, which uh, when you consider that all three boys were in the Hobbs home that day, it's certainly a possibility and even a likelihood that that's exactly where the hair came from. And that is Hobbs hair, but it could actually have another source completely. We'll never know otherwise. So with that information, Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of Stevie Branch became the new alternative suspect. <coughs> Now, we go on for another four years. In 2011, uh, West Memphis Three win uh, approval for an evidentiary hearing scheduled for December 2011. They're going to, they have permission to. For more DNA testing uh, in July of 2011, Dustin McDaniel, Attorney General of uh, Arkansas, and Patrick Benka, who's an attorney who's now in practice with uh, uh, Dustin McDaniel, 
but he was an acquaintance. They have a casual, their usual casual luncheon together that they had every so often. And Binka is representing the West Memphis Three, and he suggests, well, you know, let's work out a plea deal on this. And so uh, maybe we'll just go straight to a new trial. They, they, and then it finally comes around where they're going to work out a plea deal. Uh, new, new prosecutor, not with with not a great deal of prosecutorial experience, named Scott Ellington, was in Jonesboro, uh, which is where the uh, prosecution was based for the West Memphis Three. Scott Ellington uh, eventually goes along with the idea presented by the defense that a plea deal needs to be worked out, and they finally work out what's known as an Alford plea, which the West the West Memphis Three plead uh, they plead guilty but they can still continue to claim their innocence so they get out on that basis now this raises the question you know if you have new evidence coming up if you had DNA evidence that was going to not only exonerate maybe perhaps exonerate you but certainly at least implicate somebody else why wouldn't you present it when you had the opportunity in December instead of instead opt to plead guilty back in August of 2011. The only, they, their answer is, is they didn't really have any new DNA evidence. And if you read the media coverage of about that, you get you, that's the impression you get without it being state. It's being stated, you know, explicitly. The other thing is they really didn't have, it's pretty clear from, uh, like an Arkansas Times story from July, that they didn't really have anything. The other thing they did have is the possibility of a new trial being ordered on the basis of a jury misconduct in the Baldwin-Eccles trial. The problem with that is that still leaves Jesse Miskelly sitting in jail. Jesse Miskelly has already confessed to the crime and is generally seen as being, yeah, he's can already confessed to the crime generally seen as being guilty. Uh, <coughs> Miss Kelly, do you think he's going to sit there and watch his two friends get new trials and he's going to just sit in jail for the rest of his life? No. Because, you know, if they had had a new trial order for Eccles and and Baldwin and leaving Miss Kelly out, which is probably what was going to happen because Miss Kelly really didn't have, he, he, not only did he have no, no basis for a new trial that we can see, he also had all these, he had a, a number of confessions post-conviction that the court would simply have to take into consideration. Look, and this guy has, he confessed to, uh, deputies the day he was taken to prison after being sentenced he confessed to his attorney with the hand on the bible he confessed to prosecutors two more times one one time in the company of his defense attorneys who were begging him not to confess and he went ahead and confessed anyway so when you have that many confessions post conviction Do you really think the court's going to take? Do you really think the court's going to take um, 
much consideration for a new trial for him? Of course not. There's, he had no basis anyway. So what they could do is they could say, hey, Jesse, you've already served 18 years in jail. Uh, I'll tell you why. Here's the deal. You testify against your t- two friends here. We'll give you time served. Or, if, or uh, we'll let you out at 25 years, whatever the deal is. And uh, no doubt he would have taken it. So they had a real problem. What happened was West Memphis 3 took the plea deal and opted not to present new evidence. What's happened since then is Damien has gone on to become like probably the best-known professional practitioner of magic in the Crowleyan sense in the country, maybe in the world. Uh, Jason Baldwin has become a professional victim. Um, He's got a rinky-dink little organization in Austin, Texas. He claims he helped found. It's not really clear what he actually did, but he's getting some sort of little salary there, and he's claiming that he's helping people get off, even though it's not really clear he's ever actually helped anybody do that. Uh, And he uh, and Miss Skelly's hanging around the trailer park still with his dad. So, and in the meantime, they have made absolutely no effort, no discernible effort to, to try to prove themselves innocent or to try to find somebody else as a really viable alternative suspect. With the one exception of Damien Eccles, help was a producer on a movie called The West Memphis Three, uh, called West of Memphis, which uh, built this idea that Terry Hobbs was the killer. There was also a, a third Paradise Lost movie that came out right about the time that, that was in final production uh, and came out after they were released. That included the footage of their release and also makes the case against Terry Hobbs. There was a feature film, a really bad feature film called Devil's Knot, based on a really kind of bad book by Marl Leverett uh, about the West Memphis Three case. Uh, her book's better than the movie, but that's it's, it's faint praise. Um, and then we have... Things like the ID Network and Oxygen recently uh, put out specials about the West Memphis Three. There are many podcasts about it, and they almost all of them get the facts wrong in the case. What my podcast is, I go over details uh, week by week. Uh, over, I'm not finished yet, and I'm up to almost 60 episodes now. Uh, I probably got another 20 episodes, 20, 25 episodes to go, and I'll be finished with what at least I have on hand right now as far as the West Memphis Three. And I go into a lot of detail, a lot of a deep dive on the case. Let me say on the front end, I'm not a podcaster. I'm not a, a, a former radio jock. Uh, I'm not a television personality. I want to say I'm... You know, the original version of my episode one, I said I was not an expert. And you know what? I'm not. I'm really, what I am is I'm a an old-style print journalist. He's trying to 
cover the case in an old-fashioned way by actually looking at the facts and presenting them to you. If you choose to disagree with me about the interpretation of the facts, you feel free to do so. I don't really get a lot of feedback on the facts. What I get feedback on is just the whole idea that the West Memphis Three could possibly be innocent. Well, they're not innocent. They're not innocent legally, and they're not innocent in fact. They are guilty, guilty, guilty. And anyway, that's enough for me. Thank you very much.